turning to the gospel according to Luke, mission to the world. I think it's something like 57 sermons so far as we continue. Our scripture lesson, as you know, is in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Thank you, Mike Rockefeller. He is one of our pastor elders in process. We have two of them, um, him and Larry Robber. Pastor L is in process. They'll be preaching next year. Uh, and I don't mean like next year, next year, but sometime in next month from, and then a couple of months later, that next year. Uh, we have four elder, uh, excuse me, deacon and deaconesses in process as well. Um, so you want to keep that on the forefront of your mind as we look to lead the church um, and move forward in 2024. A lot of great things happening. So turn with me to Luke 13. Our text this morning is, is another, uh, as, you, as, you, as Mike read, another confrontation against our Lord on the Sabbath from the religious leaders of that day. The, 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 this, this merciful and compassionate miracle, which we will see, is similar to the other two miracles, the Sabbath miracles that took place in chapter 4 and chapter 6. And we'll see another one as we get into chapter 14. It wasn't in a synagogue like today, but it's a, a miracle that takes place on the Sabbath. Over the past couple of chapters, I've been saying, uh, we've been saying that Jesus has been teaching his disciples some really hard lessons. Things like the cost of discipleship, the priority of discipleship, that life doesn't consist of, of possessions, but on seeking and glorifying and being satisfied in God and being generous toward other people. And Jesus has been going from village to village town to town, teaching and preaching the gospel. He was declaring the king of kings has come and therefore the kingdom of God was at hand. We have witnessed over and over again how Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and demonstrated it, demonstrated his kingly authority and power over demons, over disease, death, and even nature itself, declaring that he even forgives, or has the authority to forgive sins, something only God can do. And as we get into this text this morning, we'll see once again Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And one has to wonder if Jesus was testing his disciples, in particular his 12 apostles, whether they were getting what he was saying, what he was teaching them about the kingdom. In other words, from last week is, is uh, the fig tree bearing fruit. Uh, we saw that in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Is the tree, fig tree bearing fruit? Will they finally get it? Will they finally see that Jesus is God over all, including over, his, over Satan his en and the enemies? Of God, Will they finally get that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Lord over their silly man-made rules and traditions concerning the Sabbath, which we will see will, will cause the religious ruler in our text to miss completely the compassion of God. I'll turn in our narrative this morning, and I want to look at our... Did that go back on living hope? Interesting. Put up the uh, outline for me, will you, Adam, please? I don't know if I did that or not. All right, that's cool. Well, this is really active. The, uh, the um, Apple TV. I mean, I don't need it. I got my iPad. Uh, the women's release, the ruler's rebuke, and the Lord's response. So that's, for, again, for the two of you that have taken notes, that's the outline. The women's release, the ruler's rebuke, and the Lord's response as we look at our text this morning. Now, verse 10. Our narrative opens up with Jesus and his disciples in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Luke doesn't give us any indication of where exactly he is, uh, what village he is at, but we know from chapter 9, verse 51, uh, that Jesus has set his face 
like a flint, to go to Jerusalem. All right? It doesn't mean that he walked the straight path to Jerusalem, but Luke is telling his readers that Jesus is on a divine clock. We looked at that, on a divine calendar. He's headed to Jerusalem, not to take his rightful place as a king on, on, a, on a throne, but to die on a cross, right? Not to rule on earth, not yet anyway, but to serve us as our substitution, our uh, sacrifice where he will atone for sins. And that's, that's how Jesus is going to ultimately defeat evil and put everything right, first going to the cross. There's still a lot of things that need to get done. There's still a lot of teaching that Jesus needs to teach, include training of his disciples, training and mentoring his apostles. And we find themselves, they find themselves, I believe Jesus is with his apostles, as they did always on the Sabbath, and that is gathering with God's people on the Sabbath. Of course, we know from the Old Testament, the law of the Sabbath is on a Saturday. So the obvious is, if Jesus decides on Sabbath to go and worship with the church, the Old Testament church on Sunday, how much more do we need? The King of kings, Lord of lords, Son of God. How much more do we need to be celebrating, being taught together the word of God, coming together, being encouraged together as we worship the Lord together? Jesus went to church. And as we've seen this before, when a visiting rabbi would come into a town, many times the synagogue and the ruler of the synagogue oversaw the worship there, would invite this new visiting rabbi into the, 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 the synagogue to expound on the morning's Old Testament text. Here at King's Chapel, Pastor Chris mentioned it, Saturday, January 20th, next month, a visiting pastor will come and share God's word. He's visiting in town, he's from Indiana, and he's going to talk to us about the importance of rhythms in ministry. Jesus invited to this synagogue to speak from an Old Testament text. And while he's teaching in the synagogue, his compassionate eye, he sees a woman. She must have came in through the back door, it's where the women sat in the back on the right-hand side. And Jesus noticed her Obviously, according to the text, because of her evident deformity, she walked bent over, completely bent over, doubled over. Obviously, a back issue. Many commentators theorize that it was what was, is called, for you that are medical field, uh, spondylitis deformans, where the bones of her spine were fused into a rigid mass. Now, we, we don't know exactly what the medical term was or, or what the medical condition was, I should say, in that day. But the text does give us some information. We know that her, her pain was chronic. We know that it was acute pain and her disability has affected everything in her life. This disabling spirit, literally a spirit that causes infirmity or weaknesses, was a problem for her, the pain it caused, for 18 years giving her, not, not allowing her to be able to even stand up. It affected, think about it, it affected everything in her life, all her relationships. It affected how she slept, if she could work. This poor woman did not dance with her son at his wedding. This poor woman could not jump with her grandchildren running through the field. This poor woman did not look at anyone in the eyes to have a conversation with them for 18 years, suffering from chronic pain. And some of you may be thinking, you know what, I've been in chronic pain for a long time myself. I can relate to that. Do you think she was a little bit, or dealt with a little bit of disappointment, discouragement, 
despair? Do you think that we learned from last week there were some that were in the synagogue who judged her that she must have done something wrong? Remember that from last week? And yet the text tells us that Jesus called her a daughter of Abraham. What he's pointing to is her faith. She's a woman of faith. She's one who belongs to the community, the covenant community of faith. Remember, this is Dr. Luke. He's a medical doctor. Verse 11, the diagnosis is a disabling spirit. So either it's a possession of an evil spirit or at least an influence that left her in this weakened condition. Jesus himself confirms it by saying uh, down later in the passage, she was bound by Satan. Now, we need to be careful. Uh, I think I need to say this. We, we don't want to interpret every medical condition, every medical difficulty to attack of Satan and his demons. Uh, I believe the scripture says that we should, when, when we're, we're dealing with people who are broken and hurting, we should deal with the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Um, but David Gooding, he's a professor of Greek in Belfast, he makes a good point in this passage and what it points to. He says this, the woman's physical condition was not due simply to physical causes. Christ declared it to be a bondage induced by Satan, whose malevolence has always sought from the very beginning to rob man of his dominion and dignity and degrade him into a slave. Few men and women have bent backs physically, but... Morally and spiritually, all men and women find themselves sooner or later bent and bowed by weakness of one kind or another from which they have not the strength to free themselves, end quote. Here we learn that God had allowed her to suffer a spiritual attack that caused physical disabilities. Sounds like someone we know. The whole book of Job, right? The whole book of Job. Now, notice... And again, I, I don't want to play Captain Obvious, but let me. Where is she in her severe, acute agony and disability and suffering? Where is she? She's in church. Painfully and slowly to the place where Jesus was. She made it to church to worship, to be instructed by God. And notice how this healing takes place. She didn't call out to Jesus. We see that in, in different texts of Scripture. Chapter 18, there's a man who sees Jesus, uh, uh, hears that Jesus, he's blind actually, and hears that Jesus is coming, and, and what does he do? He yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Not here. Jesus goes after her. Jesus initiates the healing upon seeing the condition, the broken and sad condition of this lady. Remember, we've been saying all along that Jesus is the Savior of all people, the marginalized, the rejected, the outcast. And here we see Jesus healing. In a culture where men publicly shunned women, go, Jesus just goes after her, verse 12. Jesus saw her. I mean, you can see the scene. He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disabilities. He laid hands on her, and after a long period of time, she was made straight. No. And immediately... No question about who's healed her. She was made straight. And she what? Glorified God. She made much of God. And I said this would be unusual, right? For a woman, for a man to touch a woman. Yet there, there's no sin here. There, 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 there's just affection. He didn't have to touch her. Jesus didn't have to touch her to heal her, but he did. Because Jesus wanted her to know that he loved her. And he identified with her 
physical suffering and her pain. He embraces her. He looks at her and says to her, be freed from your disabilities. And the text doesn't say, but we can, we doesn't explicitly say, but we could, we could draw the conclusion from verse 16. As Jesus unbound her from Satan's bondage, he bound Satan from tyrannizing her. Listen, the cruelty of Satan was no match for the curing compassion and authority of Christ. And immediately her heart was full with thanksgiving and gratitude. And she stands up and the first person she saw standing up is Jesus. And she does so in full view of the entire gathered assembly. And she starts to worship and praise God. Having come into contact with the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ, she immediately ascribes him glory as her all-satisfying treasure. Just another example of Jesus' ministry, Luke teaches us, uh, how the lowly and the broken, the rejected and the marginalized are lifted up. Family, I'm here to tell you this morning that that's a picture of the gospel. It is Christ himself who sees each and every one of us in our condition, not only bondage to sin, but our complete inability to do anything about it. And what does he do? He comes after us. He left the glories of heaven even while we were in our bondage to sin and Satan. Takes on humanity to identify with us in our sorrow and he goes to the cross and voluntarily takes the wrath we deserve, the just punishment for our sin and then he touches us with his nail-scarred, gracious hands and healing our sin-soaked souls. That's the gospel. And in grateful attitude we sing. As we come in and gather, we're singing out of gratitude and thanksgiving to our God. Praising God for the cure that is ours through the compassion of Christ. The glory that belongs to him alone for our salvation. All beauty and glory and an infinite value belongs to God alone. Christ alone. Luke will mention that Jesus is in the synagogue. And it's funny, not funny, but it's interesting in this text. It's the last, I believe it's the last mentioned Although Jesus went to the synagogue on Saturday, but it's the last one mentioned in the gospel according to Luke. And what's interesting about it is it kind of bookends the very beginning. The first time Luke mentions that Jesus is in the synagogue, if you remember, way back in chapter 4, he's in Nazareth, his hometown. They hand him a scroll, and he rolls the scroll open, he turns to Isaiah 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news, the gospel, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now on this day, the prophetic truth becomes a reality. The divine display of kingdom power of Jesus. The final recorded, as I said, and the woman's free. What a bookend. This is my ministry, and this is how it ends. She's free. And let me say this before we move on. In all our brokenness and suffering and distress and disappointment, family, God sees you. God sees us. Our situation is never beyond his care and, and his help. And the question is, can God physically heal today? Absolutely. And he does. And for the record here, here at King's Chapel, we pray for the sick often. And if you're sick, as the scripture teaches us, Call an elder. Ask to speak to one of the elders for prayer. Let us lay hands on you and pray over you, just like Jesus did. And just like Jesus' brother James commanded the leaders to do so. 
We pray for the sick people. We don't believe that God has to heal, but we believe that God can heal, and so we ask in faith. And one of the things he promised in this life, though, not physical healing for everyone, but deliverance from guilt by the forgiveness of our sins. We've been loosened from the power of sin. We've been set free from the domain of Satan, all this through the cross of Jesus Christ. He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, and now we belong to him. So Jesus has not promised full deliverance in this life, but his demonstration and his authority and his power and his compassion as he physically heals people are pointers to the full deliverance in the kingdom to come. Family, be encouraged with that wherever you are, whatever you may be suffering, whatever illnesses and struggles you may have today, pointing to the full deliverance in the kingdom of come. We have that short hope. We have the short hope that someday, someday if you're a follower of Christ, if you repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will say to us, as he said to this woman, you are freed from your disabilities. For he will give us a transformed, glorified, perfect body for the perfectly good, new, renewed creation. There'll be no more disabilities. The day is coming when the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. The woman's release. Be encouraged. The, the ruler's rebuke. Hmm, I don't know what's going on with this. I'll sing a song. What am I saying? No. <laughs> Remember what's going on in this scene, right? The word of God who was made flesh is teaching the word of God in the presence of the assembly. And the proper response with Jesus teaching assembly, which should be wonder and awe and praise and thanksgiving, Right? If Jesus showed up on Sunday morning, I'd be like, okay, I'll go down. You can come. I'll get out of the way. I'll get out of the way. You, you could preach, but not here. Right on cue, the religious folks respond to him with accusation that he's breaking the word of God. Think about that. The word of God, who made flesh and dwelt among us, is teaching the word of God in your presence, and you say, hold on. You're breaking the word of God. Religious people love to make rules and regulations. They love to add to the commands of God. Let me explain, just in case you're new here, let me explain what it means, what I mean, and what the Bible teaches about religious people. James talks about true religion, uh, uh, taking care of the orphans and the widows. That's not what I mean here. The description given us in Scripture about religious people like the Pharisees. and They, they, are, the, they are the Bible-thumping, Bible-believing, Bible-reading ch ch church folks that go to church every Saturday, but they are the holy-and-thou ones, right? They're self-righteous because of their works. They're full of pride, and they look down on others. We see that throughout the ministry of Jesus as he rebukes the religious leaders of the day. He takes out more rebuke on them than anyone else in Scripture. Religious people take the fun out of fundamentalism, I've heard. <laughs> they like to add more and more and more and more offenses around God's command. God gives us these commands for our safety, but they want to keep adding and adding and adding and adding to where it's almost impossible to obey them without breaking one of their stupid, silly rules. Man's law pertains to the Sabbath was one of those crazy rules in those days. You know... You know things went off the rail with man-made rules. When there, there's a woman who's bound by Satan 
in extreme pain and chronic illness for 18 years. He's healed, and the ruler of the synagogue is indignant and angry and grieved and resentful because Jesus interrupted his liturgy and healed on the Sabbath. Something's very wrong. And rather than talk directly to Jesus, look at verse 14. He turns and says to the people, verse 14, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. They accuse him of breaking the commands, you know, just accuse him of misinterpreting Scripture. This is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And God didn't break any law. Jesus didn't break God's command. He broke some of their ridiculous Sabbath laws, yes. You see, in order, the, the Scripture tells us in Exodus 20 that we are to and I'm not going to get into the Christian Sabbath. Um, we did a series, that, uh, the Ten Commandments. If you want to learn about the Christian Sabbath and the Sunday worship, go to that series. I'm not going to get into it today. I don't have time. But Exodus 20 talks about keeping the Sabbath holy and not working on the Sabbath. And they said, well, what does it mean to work? So they all got together and decided to come up with these rules. I just want to read a few of them to you so you see how silly things got, okay? Listen to this. If you want to carry a load, you can't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. Nothing larger than an olive can be eaten. Throwing an object in the air but catching it with the other hand is prohibited. No baths because if you take a bath and water spills on the floor, you have cleaned the floor by accident. Chairs can't be moved because it may make a rut in the ground and therefore you have violated the Sabbath by plowing. Ladies, you can't look in the mirror because if you see a gray hair, you may be tempted to pluck it out. That's work. No sowing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, Winnowing, sifting, dyeing, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating, weaving threads together, tying or untying a knot. This, this is my favorite. And because it has to do with food. I'm just saying. One can only travel 3,000 feet from their home. But if the previous day that placed food within 3,000 feet of the home, they could go there and eat it. And since the food was an extension of the house, they can go another 3,000 feet beyond the food so you could you could just follow the food wherever it goes <laughs> you go to your neighbors for lunch you go to the other neighbors for dinner you could just follow the food even first of all we know god's law doesn't say that and even if you look in their strict and 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 very ridiculous religious rules nowhere does it say that that you can't heal on the sabbath Remember, Jesus said back in chapter 6 that he is the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 2, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So basically, Jesus is saying to these guys, listen, the Sabbath thing is my idea. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know how it works. In fact, it's a good day. It's a good day to, to heal, to meet needs, to save a life. Verse 15, the Lord answered. Notice that Luke used that term Lord, Lord of the Sabbath. Lord answers, you hypocrite. Jesus, don't you offended me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. No, that's not what he says. You hypocrite, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? The answer is yes. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who was Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath? 
Remember, a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be religious and holy, but they're not. They're the kind of man who would, who would go and give water to an ox or a donkey on a Sabbath, but be disgusted when a woman gets healed. A woman, a daughter of Abraham, is freed from Satan's torment and healed on the Sabbath. That's a hypocrite. These religious folks are condemned by their own practice on what they do. The Sabbath is a time of celebration of the mercy of God, God's liberation from bondage, Jesus' divine mission to bring release to captivity does not pause because it's a Sabbath. And this woman, in response to Jesus' healing, glorifies God. And you would think the pastors, the, the leaders, the rulers would be you know, filled with joy that, that people are healed of Jesus and glorifying God, enjoying the Lord. But what do they do? They man, you came on the wrong day. You should have come between Sunday and Friday afternoon, not on the Sabbath. Unfortunately, if she might have been there, I don't know, but if she was there any other day of the week, Jesus wasn't there. She wouldn't have got healed. She'd still be bent over. And the religious leaders couldn't do anything about it. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. They were guilty of showing compassion to their animals. And they would not show compassion to those created in the Imago Dei in the image and likeness of God. Is it wrong to rest and worship on the Sabbath? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to care for your animals on a Sabbath? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to be a hypocrite and care more about animals than you do people? Yes. That's the point. Right? You want to save the whales? Go save them. Cool. You want to protect the turtle eggs? My wife and I were in a beach not too long ago and had that little rope around you. You can't go near the turtle eggs. Good. Care for them. Just don't tell me you support the murder of unborn children. You care more about that than you do about people. I'm creating the Imago Dei. It's a contradiction. You're a hypocrite. The argument here is what is true of animals is more true of those created in the image and likeness of God. How incredibly cutting is Jesus by comparing the woman's binding to the binding of a farm animal who them themselves need to be set free by someone else to get a drink of water, to be loosened by their own masters. If the Sabbath was good for animals, shouldn't it be even better for the people made in the image of God? That's the point. What better day for the Lord to heal and deliver from a, dis a debilitating disability than the Sabbath? And notice Jesus does not revoke the law of Moses. He'll, he'll later say he fulfilled the law, but he's interpreting very different compared to, compared to those and the mission that he's on with the gospel. Deuteronomy 5.15 makes it clear the Sabbath is to be celebrated from, because of captivity and bondage. Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, you've been delivered, you've been set free, you have been brought out by the mighty hand of God. You were a slave and now you're free. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What better day to reflect on the compassion of God? Then on the Sabbath rest. Verse 17. And he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Glory, infinite value and worth belong to our God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowd adds to his women praise as they rejoice. That's the proper response of the work of Jesus. Listen, this text shows us again, we saw this, couple of weeks ago that there will be some who are indignant 
to the work of Christ and to the person of Christ, who refuse to respond to the call of repentance and faith. And there'll be those who are rejoicing in all that Christ has done. No one sits on the fence. No one sits on the fence and, and watches Jesus work and hear the gospel news. There's, there's a choice that needs to be made, family. He does not allow us to be neutral. We must recognize that the vision, the gospel will bring the vision, chapter 12, verse 51 and 53. And we should not ignore the signs of the times, chapter 12, verse 54 through 56. The question is, where will you, or the question should be, will, will we side with the leaders or will we react with the people? His power and compassion requires a choice. Which one are you this morning? Are you the hurting one? Are you the one who needs a touch of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus? Are you the one who's rejoicing in all that Christ has done? Maybe, maybe you've been, been seeking him and looking for healing. You haven't received it. Maybe God's not, it's not his will for your life, but, but he's here with you by the power of the Holy Spirit to comfort you, and to use not only the spirit of God dwelling in you, but the people of God to bring comfort and care and compassion toward you. He knows He's paying attention. He cares. He's going to meet you by the power of the Spirit. He loves you. Or are you the one judging? Why does God show mercy and compassion to them? Hey, they don't do it the way they're supposed to do it. They don't worship the way I worship. They don't read the same books I read. Is God really blessing them? Are you the religious critic that has a hard time rejoicing in, in God's grace being poured out on other Folks, because they don't do it the way you think it should be done. Adding rules and, and, and uh, different man-made things so that you are actually missing the compassion of God. Let us be a people who are compassionate. Let us be a people who run to Jesus. Let us be a people who see and love and, and worship and glorify God. The rulers rebuke. Finally, the Lord's response the confrontation with the religious leaders, um, even the clash that he has with Satan, the hold that he had on this woman, it's not just over the rules, but it's over who rules. Okay? It's not just over rules, but over the one who rules. God does not relinquish his authority and power to the enemy because it's the Sabbath. That's why Jesus just simply, powerfully, and with full authority annihilates Satan's evil works and dominion over this woman. And here, we saw this last week as well, Jesus will illustrate, he'll teach what he's trying, what he's trying to show them through this miracle, through this Sabbath day miracle, what he's trying to show the people, he now illustrates, as he did last week, in a parable. Remember we talked about that parable. Para means besides. Balo means to cast or to throw. Jesus takes something that they saw or that they knew, that they understood, lays it alongside something that they don't understand, and the one explains the other. So what Jesus does, he takes these two parables to teach the disciples about the mystery of the reign of God, the rule and reign of God. The point of the parables here are similar. Something starts out small, will eventually come to the point where many will dwell securely as the, the mustard seed grows into a tree and where the permeation with the total, uh, total permeation of something as leaven in bread. That, that's the point. The kingdom looks falsely weak and powerless at the moment to some, but the exercise of it, its inerrant power, allows it to transform and it will spread and grow and grow. The king has come. His name is Jesus. The kingdom of God is advancing 
There's not a man, there's not a woman, there's nothing in all creation that's going to stop the kingdom of God in its advancement. And what Jesus did and continues to do as he demonstrates his, his kingly authority and power over disease, demon, and death is point to a time when the kingdom will come and all the brokenness and deformities will be no more. That's the point of the parable. And, no, and, and although his miraculous power in many ways to them is like a small mustard seed as he heals a few, it will eventually spread as the kingdom is, comes into its completion. Now, some have taken this passage, and as you guys get into your community groups, some have taken this passage to mean that Jesus is talking about the gospelization of the world. That's not what the passage says. That the gospel will triumph in the world and, and everyone will be gospelized before Christ comes back. That is not what the parable says. It's reading too much into the parable. Philip Reichen gets it right. He says, from a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows at times invisibly and almost imperceptibly, subtly, until it reaches all nations with its transforming power, end quote. Do you realize almost you know, the, the entire Roman world within a few hundred years has heard the gospel after this. What Jesus is pointing to is, though, is the final consummation, the final kingdom. When, 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 when the whole world will be healed and the renewed heaven and earth where his reign and rule will be established, established and brokenness and sin will be no more. Despite fear, despite opposition, what's going on in this text, the rule of God will continue. The things Jesus is pointing to are the things to come. So you see, in and of itself, this woman's healing was something small, personal deliverance of this one woman, this lone individual, yet its beginning is much, will grow and grow like the mustard seed. One of the smallest seeds a farmer can grow. It will grow, it, it will grow, it will grow and grow. Look what it says. Someone took and sowed it in the garden. It grew, became a tree, and notice what it says, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. The kingdom of God will not only grow, but the image of the birds of the air resting and making nests and resting in the branches is this picture of this, this calmness. I want you to see this, this, this shade, this refuge, this safe shelter as you put the seed, you water it, your sprout comes out and it grows, not just a bush, but into a tree 15, 20, 30 feet tall. Its canopy, its, its foliage is just a place where these birds will come and rest, build nest, all kinds of variety of birds. Dr. Bach. The point is that the kingdom will end up with significant stature and be a place, he catches this is so important, and be a place where people of all races can reside comfortably, end quote. That's the point of all the birds. It's an Old Testament picture where all nations, all tongues, all tribes will gather together. And although it is growing, we know that God is redeeming. God is rescuing. God is adopting his children. And though at this time in the ministry of Jesus, they didn't understand he was the king. They didn't get it. They didn't interpret the times. But family, the kingdom of God is advancing. The subsequent threat of eternal judgment is also coming. We've talked about that over the past few weeks. And the parable of the leaven, look, starts out with something insignificant. Jesus used the, the, the term leaven in multiple places. In chapter 12, he used it in a positive, excuse me, in a negative way. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. Here is the positive. As a woman adds leaven to a dough, it'll, it'll permeate the dough. 
It's interesting, the dough here that they mentioned, I think it's 50, um, how, how much is it? Yeah, 11, three measures of flour is, 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 feeds 100 people. I think the, uh, the hyperbole is, is Jesus saying, look, this massive amount of dough as this little bit of leaven will cause it to rise. Bigger and greater is the kingdom will come. And I think one of the questions that this kingdom parable points us to, and, and again, you could talk about this in community groups, is, and you know, one of the answers that the kingdom parable uh, answers for us is, how can we avoid making silly and stupid rules being prideful and arrogant and judgmental and miss the compassion of God. How, how, do, how can we avoid that? That's the question. And I think the answer is at least this. We have to be about the big K kingdom, not our little kingdom. We have to recognize what God is doing in the world and get caught up in his story, not our story. Religious people, they wouldn't say it out loud. They would say, my kingdom be done, Right? My will be done. My glory and my fame. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. No, no. You need to say, your kingdom, Lord. Your kingdom, not mine. Your name be famed. Your name be glorified. You alone are king of the universe. I mentioned this before. Remember, family, when you see the word kingdom in the scriptures, kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the first thing we ought to think about is the king himself. Secondarily is the people in which, over which he realm, the realm in which he oversees and, and has authority over. Jesus came on the scene, you know, Mark chapter, chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. The Bible teaches us that the kingdom of God is both a reality now because King Jesus is here, he's king in authority over his church, and it's a reality coming in the future when he will inaugurate the kingdom and consummate it until his final day, Right? The scripture teaches us that. Paul says, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's now. That's now. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and been transferred to the kingdom of his son. But there'll be a day, Peter writes, there'll be a day that uh, will be a rich provision for God's people and entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a present reality, there's a future hope. That's what Jesus is pointing to and I want you to be encouraged about that this morning, the issue of the text is that Jesus Christ is king and he has come. He has come to make everything right. The kingdom of God in Christ has created the church and God, excuse me, and the kingdom of God works in the world through the church to accomplish the divine purposes of extending his kingdom to the world through the power of the gospel. We're caught up in that mission, family. We're caught up in what God is doing. We're caught up in that growing tree that is having the birds come and rest on it. Matthew 24, Jesus says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Do you see that? Small seed, a little bit of leaven, expands. Now, family, I will tell you that that was a shock to the Jewish people. What they expected was the king to come and reign and rule immediately. To establish his kingdom. They were not expecting a Messiah, a king to come and go to the cross. They were not expecting that. Three things I want to take away. The band, you guys can come on up. For the rest of us, listen to this, okay? And then you guys can, again, pick it up in the community groups. Three things I want as we close from this text. Number one, family, are you and I living on mission? 
Are we demonstrating the gospel and declaring the gospel that the king has come, that the king is the answer to this twisted and broken world? By sin and guilt and shame, he has come to forgive sin. There are many people that need to hear the gospel. There are many people that need to see the gospel demonstrated with kindness and love and sharing the good news with confidence. Family, when we live on mission and we're, we're being used of Jesus to live life and, and love people and care for people, have compassion on people, and then share with them the goodness of the kingdom, we should do it confidently because why? This text tells us that the tree's gonna grow. The birds are gonna come. So are you living on mission? Number two, don't measure your missional work, your life living out the gospel. Don't measure it because you may not see the fruit of it. You may not see the tree growing. You may not see the leaven, uh, the, the yeast working in that leaven, but God does. Be encouraged. Any chance you get to share the gospel, any chance you get to love people and point them to Jesus is a good day. Leave, leave the rest up to the Lord. He'll change hearts. He'll regenerate people. It's our job to share the good news of Christ. Okay? That's our job. And lastly, have you yourself personally confessed and repented of your sins? Have you trusted Christ? Have you been set free from guilt, shame, and bondage to sin, self, and Satan? Another, in other words, family, before we sing, what kingdom do you belong to? Have you been touched by the compassion of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the mercy of Christ? He died as an atoning sacrifice, bearing the wrath you deserve in your place and for your sins, was buried three days later, he rose from the grave, declaring that his sacrifice has been accepted. And all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you been adopted into the family of God? By grace alone, through faith alone, solely on the finished work of Christ alone, who died as a sacrifice for your sins. So those are the three things. May the Lord lay that on your heart this morning. Let us pray. Father, um, thank you, God. Thank you for this narrative that you placed in your authoritative, infallible, inerrant word that you have given us from the lips of Jesus. Lord, thank you for this teaching. Thank you for the compassion you showed. And maybe there's someone here that needs to just rest in you and, and know the touch by your spirit that you love and care for them. And God, we pray that we will be a people that will demonstrate and declare the gospel, that we will, be, we will have eyes to see the hurting people around us so that we can love them and tell them about our good and God and Savior Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that has not received Christ as Lord and Savior, and the command to repent and believe, you will give grant to them faith and repentance today for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.